science. Hello and welcome to Love and Science. I'm Andrew Glester and we have a packed show today. We're here from a man making spacecraft to look for gravitational waves and we'll hear from Dame Evelyn Glennie and songwriter Hannah Peel and much more. There's no Malcolm Love today. He's an island, I, th I think. But you know Malcolm, he could be anywhere. Like gravitational waves, I suppose. Now, if you're anything like me, you'll be delighted with this week's news that the European Space Agency has given the green light to the LISA project. LISA stands for the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna Mission. But don't worry too much about that. It's designed to study gravitational waves in space. As you probably know, gravitational waves are a predicted phenomena, uh, predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity. Essentially, if Einstein was correct, and let's face it, he was very often, very brilliantly, then massive objects and massive phenomena in space would create ripples in space-time which would pass through space-time and the Earth and us like a wave, well actually more as a wave. And the LIGO Observatory detected them last year here on Earth for the first time and once again proved that Einstein was correct. But that sparked, that discovery sparked renewed optimism among scientists that gravitational waves could provide us with a deeper knowledge about our universe. Just like when Galileo first turned his telescope to the stars and when the first radio telescopes were turned on, gravitational waves provide a new way for us to observe the universe and could reveal as much as those optical and radio observations have. So the news that Lisa's been given the green light is wonderful news for anyone who cares about the universe or a place within it. And now Lisa will be three satellites in a triangle formation beaming lasers to each other across space to detect those gravitational waves created by massive objects like black holes and supernova explosions and much more besides. Lisa has been a mission planned for some time now but has been subject to delays and uncertainty partly caused by us not actually knowing that gravitational waves existed but LIGO's discovery and of those gravitational waves and the LISA Pathfinder mission which was a space mission as proof of concept for LISA was a great success and now it's full steam ahead it'll launch between 2030 and 2034 and I met up with Michael Perra Lloyd an engineer in the team making those LISA mission spacecraft my name's Michael Perloid. I'm the mechanical design engineer, was project engineer on the LISA Pathfinder mission, an ESA mission to test technologies that will be used in the future LISA mission, a constellation of three satellites uh, flying in formation behind the Earth. The LISA mission is a large observatory planned to measure gravitational waves, gravitational waves which were discovered last year by the LIGO ground-based detectors. Um, LISA is able to look at even larger events than what can be seen on ground. There's a lot less noise in space. LISA will have arm lengths of two and a half million kilometres. The LISA Pathfinder mission essentially shrunk one of the arms from LISA into essentially a metre diameter satellite. And we in Glasgow University, where I work, 
developed the flight interferometer, which does measurement at picometer stability. So it's a very, very accurate meter stick, essentially. Okay, so what did you personally do in this project? So as a mechanical design engineer, I'm less involved in the the actual building of the instrument, but I designed a lot of the tooling to to help build the instrument. I was also heavily involved in the qualification campaign, so the thermal testing, thermal vacuum testing, vibration campaign. I uh, designed a a very clean test adapter for bolting it down onto a, a shaker table and testing our all glass interferometer uh, to the qualification levels required to, to prove that it could launch uh, okay. into space and thankfully we're, we're been very fortunate and it was a great success the mission, it launched in December 2015 and the first results came in around uh, June of 2016 and it's been a tremendous success and nothing broke yeah. uh, on the way up. All that work that you've put into this amazing piece of equipment that is going to measure gravitational waves in space and on launch day it's made of glass it's going to be shaken like crazy on the launch pad it's strapped to a large firework essentially yeah so how do you feel on launch day when you watch did you watch it live we watched it live it was at 4.04 in the morning um, delayed by 24 hours uh, also due to one technical hitch as, as we went along the way but it was incredibly exhilarating but intimidating because yeah at any point along the way even getting it to the launch site and in the three months it, it, it took to get on station something could have failed and that's the end of a decade of work uh, in one moment uh, the European collaboration that we work with tended to wake up early and get in for five o'clock for a very formal day of uh, news conferences and watching it and yeah uh, we had a we in Glasgow because it was four in the morning in the UK we, we decided to kind of have it as a party in a success orientated manner and uh, enjoyed a few um, crisps and nuts and, <laughs> and uh, beverages uh, so we, we took a slightly different strategy because in the end we couldn't do anything at that point we had our flight spare which we were able to show off at this year's UK Space Conference um, that was, that's the insurance for a mission like this really, okay. a flight spare so, so flight if, spares of every, every component <clears throat> in the spacecraft so if that, if that had for example blown up on the launch pad yeah. this one would have gone into space uh, it, we would hope so again it's big money just even getting to again you would have to really spend another 12 to 18 months assembling testing the full spacecraft and then getting to launch pads another rocket there's a big big pot of money required for that so ESA may have strategically planned not to do it and just said we're close enough to success yeah. so maybe we push on and we try and do Lisa anyway or they might have taken the approach that we need to test this, we have to test this. Um, so, yeah, there, okay. there was always that chance. Brilliant. Well, listen, thanks so much for doing it, and thanks so much for talking to me. OK, thank you. Nice to speak to you. You're listening to Love & Science on BCFM. That's 93.2 FM. We heard from Michael Perro lloyd about the LISA mission to find gravitational waves in space. And the Love & Science radio show here on BCFM is nothing if not varied. And recently I had the great honour of meeting Dame Evelyn Glennie at the Cheltenham Science Festival. Now, Dame Evelyn is one of the most phenomenal percussionists in the world. She's celebrated the world over for incredible talent, performing with orchestras and as a solo artist, blowing minds with her stage presence, virtuosic performances, and a feel for the music which exudes from her with each beat, each hit of an instrument, 
All of which is only compounded in its wonder by the fact that Evelyn is deaf. So she doesn't hear the music the way that most of us do. She feels it. And her new project, Sounds of Science, caught my eye. So I began by asking her, what exactly is Sounds of Science? Well, it's basically the idea whereby, you know, I'm working with the British composer Jill Jarman and the world historian Christopher Lloyd. Now, Christopher's speciality is zooming out as opposed to zooming in. So, um, you know, he loves to see, you know, in a, in a certain period of time, well, what was happening in Europe, you know, so, but at the same time, what was also happening in Asia or in Africa or in the Americas and so on. And that becomes really interesting because, of course, at school, we focus on a particular event or a particular period in time, and you have no idea what else is really going on in the world, you know. And so this idea, the sounds of science, basically gives us, a, 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 obviously peeping through the keyhole, but a, a, a brief idea as regards to um, what, how man developed tools or objects or discoveries and that kind of thing. But well, what were the sounds of those tools and objects and discoveries, you know? So, and have we actually paid attention to those? So, for example, even, even the sound of a typewriter or indeed the very first computer, a, a lot of the younger generation will never have heard the sound of a typewriter. And they'll say, well, what's that? You know, what is the sound of a typewriter? They may know the word and they know, may know, recognize the actual object itself, but the sound, maybe not. So it's just simply allowing people to focus on that because, of course, my interest is about listening and sound creation. So it was bringing these things together. So it allows us to create almost an educational opportunity in that if we miss out a particular sound, then a person has to think, okay, where are we in history? What came before? What comes after that? So what might that sound be, you know? And, and that's, that's just a fun way to deal with history, really. And, of course, what we want to do is to make it accessible. I was speaking to a dance scientist. Mm, yeah, and they were th talking to me about the importance of rhythm mm -hmm. in terms of bringing people together, connecting us. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you had anything to say on that. Well, of course, as being a percussion player, people think rhythm is the most important ingredient for percussion players. Pardon me. And I'm not sure if I totally agree with that, um, because percussion needs all of the, the musical ingredients like any other instrument. I mean, if you just notated the rhythm of a violin concerto, the Sibelius violin concerto, the Beethoven violin concerto, and only notated the rhythm and you played it on a snare drum, it would be incredible. It would be fantastic, you know. Um, but we're not thinking about it like that. Our first and foremost sort of aspect is, is the pitch. And... Um, but if you play, if somebody played that on a snare drum, it, they would think, oh, that's a wonderfully rhythmic uh, snare drummer, and not think about the melody. So I love to take so-called melodic pieces and play the, those on unmelodic instruments, but where I try to, to make it into a rhythmic melody. So you're still having all of the phrasing of the melody, you know, the, the beginning, the middle, and the end, um, to create that musical sentence rather than the angular thing of rhythm. Um, so, yes, I think rhythm brings people together, but, but so does just striking one thing and letting it be and asking people to have the patience to observe that. I mean, one piece I play is called 
having never written a note for percussion by James Tenney. And all it is is just a, a, a crescendo and a diminuendo, getting louder and getting softer. One musical ingredient, that's all it is, one thing, one idea. But when it's spanned over 20, 25 minutes, it's incredible. So when you play that piece on a tam-tam, all the emotions that people go through, they normally peak at the same time and they, they, they really feel each other at the same time because they've just gone through this journey of such a lengthy thing, you know, that suddenly they're, they're coming together. So what's going on there? You know, is it the sound? Is it the length of this journey of a crescendo and a diminuendo? Um, you know, is it the, the white white noise coming from the the the, the tam tam? Um, is it the rhythm of the tam tam? You know, of the sustained sound? Are they hearing a whole orchestra of things going on there that they had never imagined a tam tam to be able to do? Who knows? But I feel that having that length of time to digest something always gives you a, a, a different perspective on what you think something is initially. What does science mean to you as a percussionist or as a person? I think I've become more aware of science as the musician and, and more of a sound creator as time has gone on through my own situation. Um, and I feel that I'm paying attention much more to the journey of a sound, to the impact of a sound, to uh, what's happening dynamically with the sound, um, the space that the sound is created. Um, and therefore, that, in a way, allows me to break out from the rules of being a percussion player. Um, so, you know, how perhaps you may be told not to strike this part or not to strike that part of the instrument or to use this part of the, the, the mallet or that part of the mallet. And I think that is all um, completely... It tumbled down in a great way and opened up all sorts of possibilities. I think science has helped me to, to live the sound, you know, to, to pay attention and to almost be the sound when I, when I play. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM. We just heard from Dame Evelyn Glennie, and I'm delighted to say that another person I met at Cheltenham Science Festival is the wonderful Hannah Peel. Now, Hannah is an electronic artist and songwriter whose inspiration comes from the world around her, but not from the usual fare of songwriters. Her latest album, Awake But Dreaming, is her response to her grandmother's dementia, and her forthcoming album is all about travelling into space from a shed all inspired by looking down a microscope at the neurons in our brains. Hannah has been compared to Delia Derbyshire, best known for the Doctor Who theme tune, but celebrated for her innovative ways of creating sounds and music. And I began by asking Hannah how that comparison made her feel. I'm really proud of that comparison because actually I think they're wonderful women, Delia Derbyshire, but also Daphne O'Ram as well in particular, that kind of era of, I suppose female artists but also scientists and explorers in that genre that really kind of went against the norm and really tried to push what they were doing and it's a shame that they weren't recognised as much during their time. It yeah. seems to be you know the last 10-20 years that people have started to go actually they were really really pioneering and we should be celebrating that more so it feels quite nice that now they're, they're in the press in particular and critics and, and other people are picking up on that side of things of, of 
females and, you know, anybody that's making music or making independent music and not going with the mainstream, which is, for me, what um, the likes of Delia and Daphne around were, were doing. They kind of went against the norm. They did stuff that nobody else was allowing them to do, and, and that... Something I I quite idolise and think that's a great thing. You know, I want to be like David Attenborough and <laughs> in my 90s, still doing it. Okay, so you are a musician at a science festival. What is a musician doing at a science festival? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just feel a bit random at the moment. I know. I was just in the the taxi here with the director of the festival as well, and and a lady who's studying climate change and. Um, but I suppose my last album, which was Awake But Always Dreaming, was a look at um, the way my grandmother fell into dementia. And as an artist and as a person, how I emotionally dealt with that by obviously dealing with and witnessing it, but also seeing my family go through that. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, when she could not remember us or where she was and was really living a kind of cocoon solitary confinement in her own mind because she started to lose the power to really kind of communicate and was very sleepy a lot of the time um, but one Christmas just before sadly she passed away we decided to just sing some carols after something I'd read online about music and I thought oh why not should we just try it so we started singing carols and, and from a very slumber sleep in a chair she just woke up and started singing and the lyrics came to her and she sang along until she just got too tired and she stopped and it was one of the most breathtaking life-changing moments I've ever had and experienced because of it Um, and what made me really angry at the time was that I'd never been able to connect with her before and being a musician I was angry at myself for not knowing that I could have done that a long long time ago so um, I kind of set out on a path to discover why so I happened to meet a lady who's one of the lead scientists at UCL in research for dementia and Alzheimer's and she creates magically she builds um, brain neurons in petri dishes and they analyze her team analyze them and she's funded by the um, Alzheimer's Research UK and she just happens to be from the same hometown that I am and we and someone put me in touch with her on Facebook so I said can I come meet you and she invited me to this event at the Science Museum in London and all her colleagues were there doing lectures and, and I met her and I met Alzheimer's Research, um, the marketing team as well and told them about my idea for an album uh, and I just found out all the facts that I possibly could and I, I honestly could not believe that one in three of us will die of dementia there is no cure, it is a disease whereas a lot of people still assume that it's part of old age um, there are 200 different types of dementia. The two in three of us will, uh, women, will be more affected than men, and they still don't know the reason why. And that for me was just such an astounding moment. So from then on, I started to work with Alzheimer's Research, uh, wrote some music for their Christmas campaign. Uh, so that was 2016 Christmas. Uh, did a lot of campaigning for them did a big show to launch the album raised money for the charity and had Christopher Eccleston the actor come and do poetry readings a wonderful novelist called Lavinia Greenlaw and she did a screening of her first film which is based around her father and his dementia 
and we raised quite a lot of money. So from then on, I seem to have got involved with the Welcome Collection and collaborating and talking about my research in and how I've discovered music and the mind and memory. Do you, do you have an interest in science beyond this? Was it, is this kind of kick-started an interest in Yeah, I think, I suppose it take, I, I do it from an, an emotional side and a passion. So I've always been interested in science as a kid anyway, but I think when you go into the creative industries, you forget about that. I have a band called the Magnetic North and we're a we're penned as a psychogeography kind of band so we do a lot of research to the places that we write about the history the people the stories the folklore and that gets infiltrated into the music and um, we've done an album on Orkney and one on a town called Skelmsdale and then we're working on a third record so there's always been an element of huge amount of research behind it so um so it does feel quite natural to then await but always dreaming and then actually that the next album I'm doing comes out in September and that is then a journey from the mind into space and so so the the next few angles are all about how the comparisons between the brain and space and how we right. so okay. so there's an, another <laughs> set of things that are now happening yeah, go on. How, how how do you go from the mind into space what do you mean um I think one of the the most fascinating things that I found out of the Wait But Always Dreaming project or album was when I went to see Selena, who was working at UCL and her Petri dishes, and when I looked down the microscope, the brain neurons looked like you were just looking at the universe. And it was so incredible to see, and it just looked like you were looking at the star constellations. And, and you know, I think I said to her out loud, I said, oh my god it's space and just that comparison from a tiny little neuron to the stars and then just delving into what that means so and 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 reading books on theoretical physics and string theories and and everything else around that just to try and get a sense so um i was writing for uh sounds quite mad but i was writing for a colliery brass band in yorkshire and um they'd commissioned me to write a piece of music with synthesizers and brass and so I decided to base it on a, a character of a lady just someone that I'd made up that was a lady that was a, a composer nobody knew about her but she was a massive stargazer she'd never left her home in Yorkshire um, and she worked in her back garden shed and she was called Mary Cassio and she had dreams always of going to Cassiopeia so um, so she goes on this journey to Cassiopeia in her late 80s and <laughs> leaves Yorkshire. And when I was writing the music, it came very apparent that maybe not necessarily that she had gone on that journey. It, reality is, was she really on that journey or was she sat in her, in her day chair kind of dreaming of that mission? Or is this more her last dying breath into another realm that we just don't know um, so it's very open ended the music ends with something that really evokes that question amazing so um, that's out in September that's out in September okay. so. I'm really excited oh wonderful do you as a, as, a, as a musician have a sense of how the brain in a dementia patient is responding to the music why it works why it has that connection yeah I mean on a very basic level I wouldn't 
I kind of, you know, in layman terms, I know exactly what's what's happening and why. You know, we we develop our audio our auditory receptors in our brains at 16 weeks, and those are the first things to be formed. So as a dementia takes hold of the brain, it eats away from the outside, and it can eat away certain parts of that outsideness, but ultimately it shrinks and shrinks down to the weight of an orange at the very end which is incredible when you think about the size of our brains Um, and so ultimately uh, our memory of music in particular and poetry as well because poetry is another form of music um, stay with us until the last few things so uh, the research kind of says that if you know kind of until your late teens 20s that is the music that will stick with you um, so if you had listened to very bad music <laughs> when, you're, when you were young I did have terrible 90s music so I'm, I'm quite worried that if I get to that age it might I might be haunted by yeah. those tunes but um <laughs> So, you know, now we're singing Vera Lynn and things like that to people, but what's it going to be in, like, another 60 years' time? Oh, It'll be yeah. quite funny. But, um, things can only get better, I guess. <laughs> 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 it was that moment, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so, but on your website, you've got... Um, what's it called? I've got the, the memory... Is it oh, mem- memory playlist. Yeah, so tell me about that. Yeah, so it started with an idea that... I mean, on Radio 6 Music, uh, Lauren Laverne had been doing memory tapes and... Her team had asked me to put together a story and a, a track listing to go with the, the album, which was really fitting. And it just kind of took off in in sense that a lot of people that I knew who were artists or writers said, this is a wonderful idea, I would love to do this. Um, so I started to reach out to a few other people and said, why don't we do this? Put your most memorable tracks down and really try to get rid of the kind of ego as an artist, which is really, really hard. Um, And uh, we'll put it on a memory playlist and a a story. And a lot of people do have their own stories and experiences because nearly everybody has some kind of experience um, with someone who has lived with dementia or is living with dementia. So um, it became this wonderful project. And we've got, like, Gary Newman on there, John Fox, um, the wonderful screenwriter... Frank Cottrell Boyce, um, Bill Drummond from KLF. And I've really focused, I suppose, on the people that I know and I can reach out to. But it started to infiltrate into a couple more things and it was featured at a brain festival last week in Folkestone where they just kept playing, they played the, the memory playlists over and over again over the course of the weekend in a certain venue and then people could leave their own musical memories as well on a, a pin board so. Mm. so it was really nice to see that yeah. happening so. but there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a really great film called um, Awakenings which is just a wonderful kind of you know a, a lot of people in care homes just listening to uh, iPods with their favourite music on and just becoming alive and dancing and you know I suppose at the end of the day it's what made you happy and it's the emotions because the the thing that I've discovered is anybody that's living with dementia it's the emotions that happen the most it's not the facts, it's not the names of things it's the fact that they still love and they still care and they still feel emotions and still feel loneliness but 
find it hard to express that and I think that's really important so if music obviously is based on emotions and makes somebody feel happy or sad they're going to react to that in the best way and then you can communicate and connect with them so it's a beautiful thing you're inspired by if I may say slightly different things than I would expect most uh, music that we hear is inspired by you know there's a great quote that Nina Simone says that as an artist something along the lines of as an artist your job is to reflect what you see in the everyday and and because you you have that gift of explaining things in a different way to make people realize different things and and it's a wonderful quote and I can't remember it word for word but it's it it really does kind of resonate with me that it isn't I don't feel like I want to talk about the breakup that happened or the mess of the house I live in or for me as an artist there's already people doing that and it, it gives me no interest whatsoever but I suppose when it comes to creating music this album the Wait But Always Dreaming album in particular I didn't know what it was about for a very long time because I didn't want to admit to what was happening and I didn't want to put my emotions into and realisations of what was going on until it hit me flat in the face and I had hundreds of tracks around this whole thing of going into the rabbit hole of the mind and a different world and for ages I just couldn't figure out why so I think with every album or anything that I do, you make the music that comes out that you feel you don't necessarily know why and it's only in the aftermath of finishing it or feeling like you've completed something then you start to question why have I made that and why is this happening and how has that gone about if you were to choose the piece of music which was going to stick with you there's a lot of things that make me feel very different but I would say the one thing that really opens opened me up to anything that was not just something on the radio or on your cassette um, for me on a cassette player as a child was my next door neighbour gave me a vinyl copy when I was about seven years old of uh, the Carpenters album and the, the song Why Do Birds Suddenly Appear and I put that on and, and everything changed I, I, I'd never known that someone could sing so beautifully even now talking about it makes me well up <laughs> I think it's just an incredible moment that you know just changed everything. So. <laughs> I don't know why I get so emotional. About that. <laughs> uh, well, listen, thank you so much. I can't wait to hear uh, the new album. Oh, thank you. you. Know, I want to. I want to go from my shed into space. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> thank you so much for oh, talking to you're me. Welcome. It's lovely to meet you. Now, back in our show on May the eighth, we were joined in the studio by Sophie Pavel, who was about to embark on a three hundred mile trek round the coast of Cornwall to explore the nature of those stunning landscapes. And Sophie is now well into her explorations and sent us a little update. Hello, my name is Sophie Pavel, um, and I am over two hundred miles in to my three hundred mile science communication expedition, Sophie's Wild Cornwall. It has been an incredible journey so far and I have survived through a very unexpected and very uncomfortable heat wave, but I have seen some incredible sights, including the elusive Cornish Chuff. And who would have thought that wild ponies would have such an important role in grazing in some of Cornwall's most wild and rugged areas? 
I still have over 100 miles to go and there's still so much left to see. So do head over to my website, Sophie's Wild Cornwall, where you will find links to all of my social media accounts because I am trying to find out whether social media is a good way of communicating science and wildlife to the digital generation. So without further ado, head over to my website and get following Sophie's Wild Cornwall. And if you feel like you've missed any of the action, you can catch up on all of my latest videos from the last two weeks detailing all of my adventures and the incredible wildlife that I've seen over on my YouTube channel. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Um, I'm delighted to say I've been joined in the studio by John Ford. Hello, John. Hello, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I should have worn my shorts. It's been... <laughs> I, I, I took off just to come in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, right. I wasn't expecting you to be here otherwise i'd have worn jeans no that's all right no if, if i was expecting you to be here i'd have worn shorts <laughs> and bikini bottom like you <laughs> <laughs> hey a uh, bit of sciencey stuff here a couple of birthdays only time to do two uh you off to the supermarket later for any reason or a shop yeah probably well, if you are wish the barcode a very happy birthday it was first used commercially in 1974 invented by ibm wow the old universal product code yeah the barcode's birthday today happy birthday born in 1974 barcode. and uh, born on this day in 1498 did you clean your teeth after your breakfast this morning uh before actually before your breakfast funny way around wasn't it yeah well do you clean your teeth before you go to bed yeah well wish the toothbrush a happy birthday <laughs> Uh, because the bristle toothbrush is important science. It was invented in China, believe it or not. Coarse hairs taken from the, the back of a hog's neck were used in the original toothbrush, um, attached to a bit of bone. A bit like today's toothbrushes, yeah. So invented in China. But we've been cleaning our teeth since uh, the year 3000 BC, apparently, with sticks. Well, you might have been. I've just been doing it for the last 41 years. Mm. Um, well, John, thanks so much. And uh, John's coming back to get Bristol home in just after the news. And thank you so much for joining us for Love and Science. We'll see you next week. Well, we won't see you, but you'll hear us next week.